Welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and this is a special year-end episode that has a little different format from the interviews with experts, scholars, and experienced practitioners that you normally hear. I was thinking about how we could maybe produce a sort of year in review, because we're the Modern War Institute kind of taking stock of modern war as we flip the calendar from 2021 to 2022. The challenge with that, of course, is that modern war is this really nebulous, conceptually complex, and multifaceted thing. So how do you structure that? How do you create a year in review that looks at something so difficult, really, even to define? The answer that I hit on is really a function of our organization, MWI, and the way that it has evolved. We have several projects that are each dedicated to developing a better understanding of one particular aspect of modern war. Each of these has taken shape organically, but the one thing they have in common is that they're all really market-driven. In each case, there is an aspect of modern war that seemed to have some growing interest across the U.S. military, the broader defense and security community, and within allies and partners. So if those are some of the issues around which there's so much discussion, why not focus on those as we use the end of the year as an opportunity to sort of take stock? What are the events in 2021 that we learned the most from? What specific topics were at the center of the most pressing conversations? And importantly, based on the answers to those questions, what do we expect in 2022? That's what you'll hear in this episode as I talk to the people who lead those programs for MWI. As always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, I hope you enjoy this 2021 Year in Review episode of the MWI Podcast. The first person I reached out to was John Spencer. He is the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI, and he directs the longest running of MWI's themed projects, the Urban Warfare Project, which we launched in 2017 and pretty quickly realized that there was a major demand for smart thinking about the unique challenges posed to military forces by cities. If you aren't following the work John is doing with the project, I highly recommend it. But to begin, I asked him if he could describe a few of the highlights from the research produced by the Urban Warfare Project over the past year. For me, 2021 was full of learning. I've been studying urban warfare for multiple years now, and I've learned something just about every day. 2021 was huge for us. The Urban Warfare Project launched our case studies programs, as you know, and with my partner, Major Jason Giroux, we started releasing different case studies from 1942 Stalingrad, Missoula 2016, Huey 1968, and Man, is it a challenge to summarize a, those battles down to the less than 5,000 words, but we think it's important. We've already seen the results during this past year of how useful those are for different leaders, whether they're involved with urban warfare or just warfare in general, how those summaries of those battles that have lived, you know, they have their own enduring history, each one of those battles. And we're going to continue to do those. The Urban Warfare Project podcast was also big this year. And we had so many guests, I can't list them all. I definitely learned something from each one of them. Some of my favorite episodes, though, were the ones that came out of our two weeks we spent in Israel this past summer, studying their approach to urban operations, like my episode with General Tamir discussing the IDF armor operations, or General Palid discussing the Israeli counterterror unit Yamam. As you know, we traveled there only about two months after the May 2021 Operation Guardian of the Walls where over just 12 days, Hamas and 
A couple other organizations fired over 4,000 rockets at Israel. So it was definitely an interesting time to be there. But to be honest, I'm still processing all that I saw and learned during that trip. And I can't thank people like Jacob Stoyle and Eyal and the IDF for the access they gave us for that two weeks and how much I learned about urban operations from that event. Again, John does a really phenomenal job with the project, and there's arguably nobody that spends more time studying and thinking about military operations in cities than he does. So as an expert on the subject, I was really curious what, personally, John learned about urban warfare from events of the past year. But I'm going to cheat a little bit on the parameters of what I learned from events that happened in 2021, because the most important thing I learned this past year and studied was the Second Nagorno-Karabakh War which listeners know is a, is a war that happened between Armenia and Azerbaijan about the disputed area between the two of them called Nagorno-Karabakh. The war happened at the very end of 2020, arguably fighting continued for weeks after the peace deal was signed in November of 2020. So I think I'm still within the limits. As you know, I published a report on the Battle of Susha this past summer. The battle over the city of Susha was the decisive battle that ended the Nagorno-Karabakh war. Well, because of that report that we published, I was invited to travel to Azerbaijan and into Nagorno-Karabakh all the way up north towards Susha to walk the ground of the battle site. Man, did I learn firsthand what I had researched, but also walking the ground, you just get a different level of understanding and learning and how critical that urban fight was to the strategic objective of the war and how it really came down to close fighting. It was ground forces engaged in very close, I mean like 100 meter distance, fighting against tanks, infantry to achieve victory. It wasn't a war or urban battle won by drones and air superiority. Yes, those were enabling parts of that war, but it was soldiers moving over days through tough terrain and weather to surprise the defenders, close the distance and destroy them. I took so much from that event and so much from that research trip. And to be honest, I have a dream job and each one of these, you get a a whole new level of learning when you go and visit these places and talk to the veterans, talk to the people, media that covered the events. It It was a great year. John has really been beating the drum, so to speak, about the importance of preparing for urban warfare for several years. But there's a real sense that the army in particular is taking notice of the issue and in 2021 has begun to take some important steps toward building that preparedness. I asked him if he could describe some of the efforts that have taken shape in the past year. As I really, this past year, was trying to neck down the expertise that I was building. And like I said, I'm, I'm learning, especially with those case studies, I learn every day. But you know, what expertise that I personally, as a chair of urban warfare at MDBY, have been building, and one of them is literally understanding the militaries as an institution's work on urban, which has ebbed and flowed based on leader priorities world events, you know, other things. But absolutely, there were multiple initiatives this year that took shape that I'm confident in saying are the biggest to happen in decades. It's actually a a pretty funny, great story. I know you know it, but right at the end of 2020, the Deputy Commanding General of the 40th Infantry Division, which is California National Guard, was listening to a podcast that you and I did on why urban is so hard. And by hard, I mean specifically, why is it hard for the military to do something big to prepare soldiers for the most complex operating environment in the world? And in that podcast, I mentioned a few things that could be done, like a division 
could take on the urban problem set, become the experts for the army, be the urban division like we have de facto 10th Mountain Division or Jungle Division with 25th ID, build training courses, maybe even partner with our combat training centers, our Super Bowl training events. Well, the 40th ID leadership that was listening to that podcast, light bulb goes off and he aggressively attacks that problem and and seeks out to do exactly what we were talking about in the podcast. And he reached out, we formed a, a partnership. We built the Army's first urban planners course focused on training brigade and division planners to operate in urban environments. And we ran it this past October. It was held in Los Angeles, which is perfect since it's a mega city. And we partnered with the National Training Center where we actually drove the students or flew them out to NTC where our biggest urban training event happens. Now we're working on taking all that we learned from that course just a few months ago from running it the first time. It had never been done before and creating and the next iteration, which will be greatly improved based on all the lessons we just learned. We're going to run that in July of 2022. But even out of that, we even have a working draft of a planning SOP called the Gray Book. We think it'll be similar to the 101st's Gold Book, which is the standard on air assault operations and multiple other initiatives. I really can't stress how big of an impact I think the 40th ID's efforts will be on preparing literally the whole military on being ready for urban, large-scale combat operations in urban areas. It's, it's amazing. Next, I talked to Shauna Sinnott and Kyle Atwell. They are the directors of the Irregular Warfare Initiative, which is a little unique in that it's a project that we collaborate on with another organization. Here's Kyle describing the project. The IWI is a joint venture between the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project at Princeton and the Modern War Institute at West Point, and our mission is to bridge the gap between scholars and practitioners to support the community of irregular warfare professionals. And we've been incredibly lucky to publish both through our website and host on our podcast just an incredible array of top thinkers and experienced practitioners to weigh in on both kind of the past of irregular warfare as well as the future. The Irregular Warfare Initiative published dozens and dozens of articles and produced a bi-weekly podcast throughout the year. It really was a leading forum where all of these professional conversations related to irregular warfare were taking place. So based on their roles creating and leading this discussion space, I asked Kyle and Shauna to describe some of the main themes that characterized IW conversations in 2021. You know, across this broad array of conversations, there have been some consistent themes that keep coming back to that I think I would just bend into four general topics. The first is a lot of people are trying to process the lessons learned from the global war on terror, the last 20 years of conflict since 9-11. There's been a large focus on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq from people who have both written for the Irregular Warfare Initiative, as well as our podcast guests. The people who have contributed range from practitioners at the most strategic levels, such as the former Marine Corps Commandant Robert Neller, to people who spent their whole careers at the tactical and operational level engaging in Afghanistan or Iraq, such as Colonel Bill Oslin, who is a United States Army officer, or Colonel Bradley Moses, who's an Army Special Forces officer. And we've also had multiple scholars as well as researchers weigh in as well, such as Dr. Carter Malkazian, who spent years there as a civilian, Wes Morgan and Jessica Donati. Uh, but moving on, the three other categories of topics are trying to grapple with great power competition and the transition from a focus on the global war on terror to strategic competition. The third is understanding the impact of technology in future irregular warfare conflicts, whether it be cyber capabilities, whether it be artificial intelligence. 
And the fourth bin is the essential role that influence and information operations will play in future competition. And honestly, this one has kind of surprised me a bit from when we started the Irregular Warfare Initiative. Information operations has hands down been the top interest, both from our audience as well as from guests. And from our audience, we had over 900 registrants for the Irregular Warfare Initiative annual conference. And of those, we asked them to pick among six breakout rooms they prefer to focus on with subtopics. Over 30% of those guests chose information operations compared to less than 10% for counterterrorism, less than 10% for counterinsurgency. So people are thinking about information operations and our guests keep bringing it up too. General McConville, the chief of staff of the army, spent a large part of his conversation discussing information operations. General Clark, the current commander of Special Operations Command, spent a huge part of his conversation trying to explore the importance of information operations in great power competition. And John, just to expand on what Kyle's mentioned, because I I agree with all his points, I think we can situate a lot of this in the release of the Irregular Warfare Annex at the end of last year, which is the annex to the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Um, We discussed in an episode last year with Deke Rowe and David Maxwell. And in the IW Annex, it sort of redefines irregular warfare as something that is rooted in influence. And influence is something that is pervasive in counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and in this future type of fight that we think we're going to be engaged in. Yet we still have this ongoing debate about whether IW and great power competition are a binary or whether they exist on a continuum. And I think that we're seeing the conversation shift towards this is a continuum and this is how we can integrate our lessons from the past 20 years and apply them to the next 20 years because there are things that exist on both ends of the spectrum. There are aspects of irregular warfare and influence that are not exclusive to counterterrorism. And uh, I, I think that's an ongoing conversation. I think we're going to start to see an evolution of thought about how we incorporate these two concepts that may seem at odds with each other. And In addition to these overarching themes, there's a lot of self-reflection, a lot of what does this mean for those of us who are practitioners, especially. So we've had a lot of discussion about what is the role of special operations forces, whether that's from the aviation side, from the special forces side. You know, we've had discussions with Michelle Flournoy and Admiral Olson on the future of SOF with General Clark and Linda Robinson on what that means. We've had contributors like Jack Watling write about this. It's tough to think about how you you shift some of these like organizational and personnel priorities for things that you know at the the tactical and operational level we become very good at and, and try to think about where they can be applied in that next fight. Yeah. And I, I guess I would add on to that, John, is we've had a lot of conversations on the role of special operations forces in irregular warfare. But, you know, one of the kind of consistent themes that keeps coming up, including from senior soft leaders and researchers, is that this is not just a, a soft area. This is for the joint force, for conventional forces, and for the interagency. One lesson I've taken away from the last year of these conversations is that irregular warfare is a team sport. It is inherently a joint and interagency activity, a whole of government activity. And as we know, it's very difficult to work across different organizations within the government and outside the government. I mean, just within the army, it is difficult for special operations forces and conventional forces to work together. Then add working across the Marine Corps and the army and the air force, then add working with the state department, USAID. It gets incredibly complex. 
one of the missions of our organization is to serve as a platform to kind of bridge this gap and build this community of professionals, bring them all together in, in kind of a common space to discuss these important issues. So our board of directors is kind of its own joint multinational task force. We have Laura Jones runs the podcast. She's an Air Force officer. Teresa Koble is a retired Army PAO sergeant major. Andy Maher is an Australian SOF officer. Sam Winter-Levy, who leads our editorial team, is a civilian PhD candidate at Princeton and a British citizen. And of course, Shauna, you're a Marine intelligence officer. And I think it really takes bringing all these people together to get a holistic picture of what irregular warfare is. And and I think like your earlier point, Kyle, about the, like the role of influence and information and where that stands with all this is especially important with that last point about how this is a team effort, because the factors that affect influence and information, whether it's it's technology, it's economics, it's cyber, those touch industry, they touch academia, they touch well beyond the military apparatus that many may think are like the primary proponents of irregular warfare. So yeah, John, I, th- I think those are kind of the the big things that we're seeing. And we look forward to seeing where the conversation goes over the next year as we start to process these things. Of course, the U.S. military's withdrawal from Afghanistan after a 20-year presence there naturally stands out as a defining event of 2021 when we're talking broadly about modern war. And of course, that conflict was not entirely an irregular one, but there was a significant IW component. So if the withdrawal represents a sort of reset from the post-9-11 wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I wanted to get Shauna's and Kyle's thoughts about what that means for irregular warfare, to what extent there is a debate about the role of IW going forward, and how that debate has taken shape in the past year. Yeah, John, so I think what's uh, interesting about the Afghanistan discussion is that this is obviously a very personal topic for almost everyone within our community, whether they're in the military or they are an academic who supported efforts there, or um, they took on you know a logistics role or any other avenue that would have supported the past 20 years of war. So the way that it ended had such a really reverberating effect at the most personal level that we're seeing it kind of manifest in different ways. We're seeing some look at it very introspectively, almost like an autopsy and wanting to dig through everything we did, everything they did, and think, how could I have done it better? How could I have done it differently? And then we see others who maybe want to take a little bit of a step back. Not, to, I don't want to say burnout per se, but more a surprise that everyone else was surprised. Like, yes, we've been saying Afghanistan has these issues for, for decades, and now the public is listening, now that it's fallen apart. And so that said, we're seeing a variety of scholarships start to come out and a variety of practitioner reflections start to come out. Yeah, there are so many lessons derived from this conflict that have been brought up in the Irregular Warfare Initiative space, you know, from senior practitioners such as General Petraeus and Ryan Crocker arguing that we needed more strategic patience in the conflicts, down to people assessing kind of at the tactical and operational level, the things that that we should and should not have been doing. You know, Rachel Teacott is an academic who argues that at the tactical level, we focused on building rapport instead of actually influencing our partners. Melissa Lee from Princeton University argues that our whole state building campaign was actually the core of the problem. We weren't really building states the way that we should. And many, many other arguments from the very strategic to very tactical. The thing that's interesting to me as I look more and more at these conversations and these people's perspectives and lessons learned is that despite all the hard thinking that have gone into what has gone right and what is not in Afghanistan and Iraq, I can't really point to what a clear way forward is for any future conflict like this. If there's another Iraq, Afghanistan, or Vietnam, there's no clear playbook of, okay, here's all the lessons of how we do this one again. In fact, many of the perspectives that we brought on directly counter each other on what the right approach will be. And to me, what this tells me is that 
there's more research, there's more analysis, there's more discussion that needs to be had in capturing these lessons. Because if there's one thing we've learned from history, it's that irregular warfare conflicts, non-state actors who are going to rebel against the nations, proxy wars, these, these are not things that were new with the global war on terror, and they're not things that are likely to go away. So we should continue analyzing these to understand how to address the next conflict better. Right. And we have we have the data now. We have the ability to look back in a way that I don't think we could maybe in past conflicts. So we keep hearing the analogy to the, the post-Vietnam moment and whether the community wants to look back or look forward. But I think we can do both. And we have the ability to look back and to archive those lessons in a way that is unique and can contribute towards this this potential playbook of the future. Yeah, and I think Vietnam, it really kind of resonates a lot with with a lot of the guests we've had on the podcast and people have written. There's kind of an anecdote that I've heard, and I think this was written down by Jake Shapiro when he wrote a, a launch of the Irregular Warfare Initiative article for us, is that the Vietnam War ended and people were exhausted with the idea of counterinsurgency. They were over the idea of engaging in another conflict like that, much like how we feel today with Afghanistan. However, a short six years later, the United States was involved in El Salvador again with a fairly substantive counterinsurgency campaign. And what it turned out was that we don't always get to choose the conflicts we need to embed in. We don't always get to choose where our national interests are at, are under threat. And so we need to kind of be able to understand that the enemy has a vote and be prepared to engage in these conflicts in the future one way or another. I wrapped up with Shauna and Kyle by asking what issues they expect to generate particular interest and discussion in the coming year. Here's Kyle. Yeah, if I were to guess, based on the signals we're getting from people who want to come speak on the podcast, who want to write, what the, the biggest topics are going to be over the next year, I think the role of irregular warfare in deterrence, what it means to be to have integrated defer- deterrence and how our forces can operate in the strategic competition space, that, that's going to be a, a hot topic that we need to kind of dig into uh, more and more. And I, I think we can also, as has already been suggested, understanding how you tie in information operations with our kinetic capabilities is going to be an, another hot topic that people are trying to press on. And, you know, one more kind of, of motive for the irregular warfare initiative that we talk about a lot is I think there's a kind of general misunderstanding of what irregular warfare is in the field. Some people equate it just with counterterrorism or counterinsurgency. Some people just think Iraq or Afghanistan. I think that's what irregular warfare was. But what has kind of become clear to me is that it's a whole lot broader than that. It's about the role of influencing populations. It's about, as David Kilcullen said during our conference, how do you impose costs on your adversary when you're doing it in, in means short of war? And so, so there's a whole lot there to unpack. I think one of our concerns is that people will want to equate it with Iraq and Afghanistan and essentially move on from that. And, and I think that's what the Irregular Warfare Initiative is trying to do, is trying to keep the conversation going. Um, one, because we might have another counterinsurgency or non-state actor type of threat we have to deal with almost inevitably, but also because irregular warfare is a broader part of conflict and the competition space that we need to learn how to, how to invest in. I also spoke to Liz Buchanan and Ryan Burke. They are the directors of Project 6633, which is our effort to better understand questions of security and strategy in the polar regions. The 2017 National Security Strategy was the first U.S. strategic document to really define the current era as one of a return to great power competition. We've had four years to sort of refine our understanding of what that means. And one thing we know is that competition will play out very differently in different parts of the world. Arguably, there's no part of the world that is as unique, operationally, economically, ecologically, and so on, as the Arctic and Antarctica are. 
So I began by asking Liz to kind of give a sense of how that competition has been crystallizing in the polar regions over the past year. The first point I would make is we've spent far too much of this year reconceptualizing and framing strategic competition in the polar regions. Um, Sure, definitions are useful, but I think what we've lost is the idea that the fluidity of strategic competition, you know, is such that it's best thought of as a continuum in which conflict and cooperation are linked together with competition at the centre. But strategic shifts shouldn't require... I don't think this reconceptualization of the challenge in the polar regions, um, and this is primarily concerns the litany of you know Arctic policy documents we've seen from Arctic Rim stakeholders in the last year. Um, but I think we we need to be talking more about how these states are able to manoeuvre themselves across that spectrum. Which this kind of leads to my second point: this overconceptualization without the thought of policy. Or you know, putting this, um, putting the, these uh, these responses into practice is becoming far too much of the norm, right? So we had the 2021 U.S. Army Arctic Strategy. It's essentially cornered the U.S. into a really narrow framing of just what strategic competition is in the Arctic. And I don't think great power competition is the sole avenue in which the U.S. will need to fend off challenges to its national interest there. Um, you know, and nor is strategic competition confined to state-to-state relations. Just look to a litany of economical and data-related um, competitive vectors in the region. But that's kind of lost, um, particularly in that in that strategy that was tabled. A final point here is I think 2021 has illustrated again competition in these regions is not black or white and I would go so far as to say it's not really an undesirable state of play in the polar regions either. I mean these zones turn on strategic competition, they're crafted from strategic competition, Um, you know they always have and I think they always will be but I think this year has marked another year, after many decades of now, of this absence of state-to-state conflict in the polar regions. And I think that's the marker, um, unfortunately, that too many of us are looking for as, you know, a, a tick in the box of this, this, this region's, you know, fine, there's nothing to worry about here. Um, but I don't think there's an absence of strategic competition. Um, And that's something I think we really need to wrestle with, normalising just what strategic competition is in the polar regions and how how we can benefit from it. Um, That's a discussion I think we need to be having. To the extent that it is competition with other powerful states that really defines the current global strategic landscape, we're typically talking about two states in particular, Russia and China. And both of them have made clear that they have interests in the polar regions. I asked Ryan what he makes of these interests and the way both U.S. competitors have pursued them. The U.S. frames the competition narrative relative to Russia and China and has for the better part of the last decade. As far as the polar regions, China and Russia remain committed to advancing self-interest in the polar regions, despite their narrative insisting that they will comply with international law, with treaties, with norms, with institutions. And to some extent they do, but at the same time, we can look, especially in China's case, we can look at multiple examples where they have repeatedly deviated from a variety of different laws, treaties, normative behaviors, and institutional mandates. And we see this happening in both the Arctic and Antarctica. 
in Russia's case in particular with the Arctic, while much of their activity is, again, in, in my assessment shared by many others, much of their activity is, is economically motivated. It's self-interested based on, on their own attachment to the Arctic, their reliance on the Arctic and its economic resource and potential. Still, Russia continues to advance its own self-interest and possibly even in expansionist sort of mentality or, or model. And they do so through a variety of means. And we've seen that in 2021, Russia submitted another continental shelf extension claim to the United Nations. Uh, I believe it's third in the last 20 years. And these are significant. And again, nothing has been resolved from this claim, at least not yet, but these are nonetheless signaling mechanisms saying or indicating Russia's broader interest in widening its sphere of influence in the Arctic. And it may well be for its own economic interest, and it may well be for its own maintenance of sovereignty and its own security reasons. And we can't fault them for thinking that. But at the same time, the expansionist tendencies are undeniable. And you have to think about what might transpire from that sort of that sort of behavior if it is not checked by another global power, in this case, either China or the United States. As far as Antarctica is concerned, both China and Russia are, in a manner of speaking, behaving badly. And we've seen this again just in 2021 alone with China and Russia again blocking a otherwise unanimous support or at least close to unanimous support for establishment of new marine protected areas, MPAs, within the Southern Ocean. And it's we don't have enough time to get into the details of what of what an MPA is and why we why fisheries are important and how they could devolve into conflict zones. But the fact is that you have two global powers in the case of Russia and China. And I understand there's some debate as to whether or not Russia really rises to that level of global power. But nonetheless, at least from a polar standpoint, they are influential both in the Arctic and Antarctica. So they do rate that designation in this conversation. You have Russia and China blocking or bucking otherwise unanimous or close to unanimous support for a very particular policy mechanism that would theoretically conceptually stave off future competition. And you have to wonder again why. The fact is Russia and China are playing the long game. They are playing from a strategic standpoint in the Arctic and Antarctica. Russia and China are self-interested. Obviously, of course, it isn't just the United States, Russia, and China that are active in the Arctic and Antarctica. In fact, the set of stakeholders in these regions is pretty crowded. I was curious how, based on events in 2021, that lineup of interested states has changed and what it means for security and stability in the polar regions. I think the conceptualization of what a new player in the polar regions is has shifted, um, you know, for the last five, six years. A new player in the Arctic has been primarily an Asian state, right? We've talked about China entering the region. For both poles, India has been quite an interesting, you know, new entrant into the regions as well. But in the past 12 months, I think we've seen a shift in what we're defining as a new player. Um, there's been a real concerted effort by global Britain um, and even the EU to increase their own polar profiles. Another part of this kind of shift in the approach of um, polar interests I've seen over the past 12 months has been a shift in how we frame strategic competition. I think there's been a really clear increase in what I'd call the weaponization of climate change and environmental concerns, which have been used, I think, to 
mask power plays, you know, this idea of we need to up our polar footprint in order to safeguard um, these precious, pristine environments on behalf of all of humanity is something that's becoming much more of a commonality, not only in Arctic Rim and Arctic State uh, policy framings, but also in, you know, near Arctic <laughs> states like China. So China's, of course, spent most of 2021 future-proofing its polar interests by really doubling down on the idea that the polar regions are one. Um, they are a global common, right? So they're of rightful endowment to all of humanity, but obviously also to Beijing. We've got the China-Russia relationship aligning in most places, but when it comes to the Arctic and the Antarctic, I think it's really important to point out this year we've again seen a real divergence um, in, in the agendas there. So sure, in the Arctic, I'd say it remains strictly professional um, on commercial bases. Um, we've seen a number of pivots from Moscow to offset Chinese over-reliance. We've got them bringing in the Indians and the Saudis, um, a number of the European states as well to buy into Russian Arctic ventures just to offset that kind of over-reliance or potential over-reliance on Beijing. But they've got next to no engagement in Antarctica, and that's something that's often overlooked. But here, we would see, um, especially in the last 12 months, more of a India-Russia partnership in Antarctic logistics as well. So I think three things I've learned from watching these regions in 2021. Well, first of all, the Arctic is <laughs> yet again this kind of sexy flashpoint for many, you know, article after article of bad puns terrifyingly I think some of them are kind of unwittingly done um, but here you know history matters contextual understanding of international law resource insecurity pressures and international relations 101 I think is needed to wade through much of the public debate are we as experts doing enough of that heavy lifting I don't think so um, and that's also cause for concern uh, second of all Antarctica is assumed to be this untouched continent, but I think this year's really shown, you know, it's undergoing clear industrialization. Um, New Zealand, the US, China, UK, Brazil, they're just a few of the 54 signatories to the treaty who are currently undertaking research-based developments or enhancements. I think the tourism sector in Antarctica, it's largely a private sector, of course, you know, is building more runways and infrastructure than ever before. So, you know, th this, this year certainly did not delay human activity at all on Antarctica. Um, taken together, this year it's been, you know, it's become very apparent that general knowledge perhaps interest, I guess, in the regions is waning. And, you know, it's that's not just confined to the general public either. You know, we've got US force strategy getting released, which is misinterpreting China's Arctic state. You know, how is this happening? Um, but I think this matters. You know, strategic competition in the polar regions requires diplomacy and dialogue to move across that continuum between conflict and co or cooperation in a manner which state's national interests are essentially impacted the least bad. 
So given this crowded landscape and pretty active efforts on the part of China, Russia, and others, I wondered what form the U.S. approach to competition in the Arctic and Antarctica took in 2021. The fact is, you reduce all this stuff down to the simple fact that the United States is really focused on, at least as far as the competition lens is concerned in, in the Arctic and Antarctica, that they're focused on their the defense of the homeland, at least in the Arctic, and they do that through a variety of means. The U.S. is scrambling to, or did scramble in, in 2021, to produce a flurry of Arctic military strategies in particular that had some some curious issues in them. The, the, one example being the Army's, the title of the Army strategy to regain Arctic dominance. So the Army's trying to regain dominance in a region that it never had. The Navy, meanwhile, in their first attempt at an Arctic strategy called China an Arctic State, they've since retracted that document, revised it, and changed it to the uh, the appropriate terminology. But nonetheless, again, it indicates a potential ignorance to the broader issues in the Arctic. If you've got the United States Navy referring to China as an Arctic state, when it does not, in fact, rate that designation by way of geography or by way or any other means. So when you think about these things in uh, as a whole, the U.S., in my opinion, I think is confused. But they, we have these service-specific strategies that come out that are trying to inform a strategic approach, yet are counter to this idea of jointness that we continue to to advocate. And in some ways, they fracture and or fragment the broader DOD attempts to create a a formative and create, I should say, create and execute a formative Arctic strategy, which we do have. The DOD has one, but again, one would question if the DOD has an Arctic strategy, why then do the individual services need additional Arctic strategies to supplement them? So these are things that, that evolve and lead to broader discussions. And they really come down to the fact that the Biden administration will talk tough in their policy language and will advocate for some fairly escalatory rhetoric, maybe not advocate, but they certainly preside over it. And then you have to walk it back and have actual diplomatic engagements. The bottom line here, again, in my assessment is that Russia and China are or do continue to leverage and exploit the ambiguity in the international relations arena, especially in the Arctic and Antarctica. They advance themselves toward their own self-interest, which we shouldn't fault them for. And they see the polar regions for what they are now and what they very likely will be. And then they pursue their strategic approach according to that vision. The United States, on the other hand, sees the polar regions for what we want them to be and pursuing strategies for what we hope the polar regions will be in the future. And as I'm fond of saying, hope is not a course of action. So what about 2022? In these regions, what are the things that we should be looking at in the new year? So I hope for 2022, we can see more avenues for dialogue strengthening at both ends of the earth. So in the Arctic, you know, to see the Defence Chiefs meeting reinstated is where we need to be headed. Um, this is here is about, you know, um, you know, offsetting human error or misinterpretation. Um, in January, we've got the Russia-NATO Council discussions, so I think it's a good place to start there as well in terms of really laying out expectations from either side there on the high north and how that might or might not 
um, fit into next year's NATO strategic concept that we should expect. In the Antarctic, existing forums like the ATCM, which is that Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, you know, it needs to find ways to meet face-to-face. I think that's been missing over the last couple of years um, to work out those diplomatic differences and, you know, person-to-person ties in order to break some of the deadlock, which is in that consensus body, get it moving. Next up, I talked to two of the people behind our newest focused effort to explore a particular issue related to modern war. That issue is Homeland Defense, and that effort is Shield Notes, which is a collaboration between MWI and a new organization based at the U.S. Air Force Academy called the Homeland Defense Institute. I asked Matt Kavanaugh what events in the past year have most clearly driven home the need for a renewed appreciation of the importance of Homeland Defense. It's not just Homeland Defense, but the changing nature of the threats to Americans' lives and livelihoods. The things that kill and destroy value are different, both by degree and by kind, and those are coming for us here at home. Three words from the last year stand out, Colonial, Kentucky, and COVID. The Colonial Pipeline hack threatened half the oil and gas on the eastern seaboard, creating a flashing bright red light on a glaring vulnerability in America's national critical infrastructure. The Kentucky tornadoes that just ripped through that state and several others was one of the deadliest in U.S. history and will likely cost several billion dollars worth of damage. And then lastly, COVID-19. It's it's in the background. It's white noise at this point. It's killed over 800,000 Americans, the better part of a million in less than two years. And I want to dwell on this just for a moment. Compared to military and 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 wars and campaigns, um, this is this is something else. The Overland Campaign was the bloodiest period of the American Civil War. It filled the first graves at Arlington National Cemetery in 1864. Roughly 11,800 were killed in 51 days. That's just 232 a day. And when you do the math and compare it to COVID, COVID's somewhere around a thousand a day, four times as much. Or take the Battle of Gettysburg, which claimed the lives of 7,900 Americans, including Confederates in the count, in three days. We've had individual days during during COVID that total much more than we're lost at Gettysburg. And that virus has just kept rolling along. Compare it to Normandy and D-Day. We've had days that were worse. COVID-19 took more Americans in one week than we lost in all of Iraq and Afghanistan, the two longest wars in American history. You know, some people are going to nitpick and counter and haggle and quibble, but you can't argue with coffins. We're living through true tragedy. It's a different, invisible sort of tragedy, but these are enormous sums of Americans that are no longer with us. This is this is worthy of consideration in national security discussions. And it's often sidelined and just shoved to the side. And it's one of those things that we've put off and pretended as if it didn't exist, but it does deserve to be considered in national security and defense conversations, particularly as those relate to homeland defense. I also wanted to know if those events have triggered any sort of reconceptualization of what homeland defense really is the nature of the threats, the domains in which they emerge, and the tools needed to defend against them. 
have those events triggered a reconceptualization of what Homeland Defense really is? No, but they should. We should wake up and smell the cremation fires. The things that are killing Americans, the things that threaten our very way of life have changed. And if we don't reorganize, we don't organize to defend against these threats, shame on all of us. We have a say-do gap in the Department of Defense. Our publicly available strategies and statements all say that protection of the homeland is our top priority. But then when it comes to resources, money, effort, and thinking, it all still goes to killing faraway bad guys with super cool guns. We need to rethink national defense to actually consider the word defense. And, and that's, not, that's not just propaganda from someone who's worried about um, continental defense from here at NORAD and NORTHCOM. Homelands are getting harder, hit harder than ever before. You know, war has changed. It's not exclusively nuclear. The doomsday clock is closer to midnight than ever before, but nuclear weapons in the world are down over 80% from their Cold War high. I, I see two major challenges in national security as they relate to homeland defense going forward. What's most valuable to us is now most vulnerable to our adversaries, and they have the tools to inflict pain without all the muss and fuss of nuclear weaponry. We need to find a way out of that straitjacket. And then secondly, our American sense of camo containment won't hold anymore. By that, I mean the idea that we can fight them over there so we don't have to worry about them here, to paraphrase former President George W. Bush. The idea that war can be restricted to a far-off battlefield or that those wearing military uniforms can keep the consequences from those not in uniform just won't cut it anymore. It's so much more likely now that when the nation next goes to war, war will come to the nation. Frankie Matasek is also heavily involved in Shield Notes and with the Homeland Defense Institute. And in 2021, he led research that looked for lessons from other countries' experiences that might inform the way we think about Homeland Defense in the United States. The research included trips to both Ukraine and the Baltic states, and I asked him what lessons he drew from those trips that feel most relevant or most applicable. This past year, uh, I, ma I managed to lead uh, two HDI research teams to first the Ukraine in August for a couple of weeks and then to the Baltics for a couple of weeks uh, with time spent in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Uh, one thing that I thought really stood out to me was uh, something as simple as uh, trying to buy a, a Russian beer in Ukraine and our guide was like, why would you do this? Like, like Russia is, you know, at war with, with my country and my people. Like, why would you buy anything that supports uh, Moscow? And, and I, I, I kind of thought about that and I was like, you know, China and Russia and other countries are doing a lot of hostile things against the United States. And yet the average American citizen doesn't think twice about buying products, goods, and services that come from adversarial states like China and Russia that are engaging in activities that do hurt and harm Americans. Uh, and so, you know, how do we shift the, the dialogue in the U.S. to getting the average American to realize that, like, Americans are 
you know, being attacked primarily through the information space, you know, social media, the internet with disinformation and the amplifying of of misinformation uh, to get us in America to do certain things that are against our own good interest and, you know, to do things that are dumb or, you know, like all the COVID-19 propaganda and all that stuff that has been really been pushed by the Russians and Chinese. I mean, that is leading to Americans dying, whether we like it or not. And I, you know, it's like our country's at war and yet, you know, a bulk of the American population doesn't want to believe it. And maybe our political leaders don't want to believe it or act on it, but it is, it is a big issue. Uh, and so that's, that's one big thing, uh, that, that we learned from Ukraine, uh, switching over to the Baltics. Um, the thing that really stood out to me was how a little country like Lithuania is standing up against, uh, not only Russia, but actually China. Uh, and it, it kind of, again, leads me to think about what Lithuania did back in May, you know, deciding to pull out of a big European Union trade deal and uh, taking a few more steps over this course of this year to basically uh, recognize Taiwan as a country in a way that has, has resulted in a lot of bad things happening to Lithuania coming from China. So, for example, when we were interviewing their a strategic a communication officials, uh, and, and think of uh, these folks, they call themselves Stratcom. If we combine cyber uh, officers with information warfare officers with public affairs, that is what Stratcom is in, in, in most NATO countries. But it, it, was, it was really interesting to hear them talk about how, you know, even like a little country like Lithuania, you know, population 2.9 million, I think uh, it's... GDP is probably on par with like Wyoming, I think. Um, but for the hearing them talk about how they, you know, uh, how they have this sort of anti-communist DNA in the way they think about a strategy and the way they were basically convinced that uh, there are certain precautions that they that they that they need to take for their own own security to not let the Chinese have control and influence over their data and information networks, I think was uh, something that, you know, most of the EU and also the US can kind of look up to because uh, since those events in May, the the Stratcom officials were telling us that they used to only get about four like disinformation attacks like from China. And within a month, it went from four a month to over a hundred a month. Now the Russians are still attacking them with like disinformation, misinformation articles and other things about 300 to 400 times a month. But but the Chinese basically are putting a ton of pressure on, on Lithuania and uh, it, it's, you know, it's trying to, you know, unrestricted warfare is happening in Lithuania and there's, and we can look at sort of what the US and what NATO and the EU needs to start thinking about what the future of competition looks like uh, with the activities and behavior of China and Russia. In addition to these four permanent themed series that MWI hosts, last year we also ran a limited series called Full Spectrum, which focused on the cyber domain and the information environment. 
It ultimately included a total of 18 articles. It was curated and edited by Barnett Coven and Maggie Smith, and it was phenomenal. Given how intrinsic to modern war that cyber and information operations have become, I also wanted to get their take on 2021, specifically from that perspective, cyber and I.O., There are ongoing and really important discussions taking place in defense circles about cyber and the information environment, and I think the Full Spectrum series was a really valuable contributor to those discussions. So I asked them, when we look back on 2021 and this series of articles, what are the major themes that characterize the conversations about cyber and I.O. this past year? Here's Barnett. I think there's a multitude of key takeaways or key findings from the literature on operations in the information environment and the cyber domain as part of strategic competition. First, engagement in this space is persistent. It is not simply limited to wartime. Second, it's often ambiguous in nature. And by this, I mean a couple of different things. First off, for example, nation-state competitors have routinely leveraged non-state proxies, such as was the case more than a decade ago um, when Russian private um, hackers were encouraged by the government of the Russian Federation to attack uh, cyber targets in Estonia and thereby avoided any type of more vociferous NATO engagement since this wasn't state-on-state engagement. But beyond just that, even when state actors do engage directly, they often latch on to narratives that occur that occur organically within target societies rather than reinvent the wheel or reinvent these narratives whole cloth. Third, while competitors employing cyber and OIE may do so in combination with more traditional forms of conflict and competition, they often employ these instruments of power um, in isolation and they can prove they can often prove successful in achieving strategic aims short of any type of kinetic military engagement and i think that is the true power of operations in the information environment and in the cyber domain fourth these approaches are inherently asymmetric in nature and have proven quite effective for competitors that cannot effectively compete with the us in other more traditional warfighting domains Even for those that can, that are sufficiently well-resourced, the relative cost, um, as well as the sort of of smaller, excuse me, risks, make competing in this space far more attractive. Moreover, and unfortunately, non-democratic regimes may have certain inherent advantages. First and foremost, they're not constrained by the truth. But... Beyond that, their less-than-open societies might make them less susceptible than democracies to these types of measures. And for these autocratic regimes, the escalatory risk for doing so may be lower. For example, one piece in our series eloquently pointed out that Russian interference in the U.S. sort of domestic elections, even to the effect that they were successful, um, merely kept could have kept a candidate out of power. And that would have been the sole sort of um, result for that candidate. He or she would have lost as a result. Whereas if you tried the same thing targeting Russia, you would arguably contribute to the death of the leader who was being unseated, or at least something similarly nasty as a result. And thus the escalatory um, risk of engaging in these types of um, actions against democracies are much, much lower than if the U.S. were to respond precisely in kind. And then finally, 
Um, unfortunately, beyond just sort of democracies being inherently more susceptible to these types of engagements, I think one other sort of key takeaway here is that unfortunately, the U.S. government unnecessarily hampers itself in this space by, for example, continuing to embrace the fictional notion of a war-peace duality. There is a gray zone, call it what you like, but there is a gray zone, and it's very, very clear in this space. But beyond just sort of this 10,000-foot um, view, there are other decisions that were also pointed out in this series that hamper an effective U.S. response. For example, one of the key takeaways from our series that really struck me was that the defenders and the, uh, those engaged in offensive cyber and OIE for the U.S. government were not necessarily coordinating. It stands perfectly to reason that if one USG entity were to engage in offensive operations against a given target, the defenders would need to be aware of that because they should expect heightened um, actions from that actor in, that's targeted in response. And yet that doesn't always occur in the US system. So in short, I think there's a lot um, that has been unearthed in the last year or so in discussions around OIE and cyber, but I think there's a lot more work that needs to happen. This is unfortunately going to be a persistent approach to, comp to competition and potentially conflict for the remainder of the 21st century. So that's it, the 2021 MWI Year in Review. I want to thank all of my guests who made time to share their thoughts, and more importantly, I want to thank them for the incredible work they do to help advance MWI's mission and to help generate a better understanding of modern war. All four of the projects will continue producing great content in 2022, and in fact, in January, a new one is launching. Based on the success of the Full Spectrum series of articles, the Competition in Cyber project will start rolling out weekly content very shortly. And we're thrilled to have Maggie Smith back to direct that effort. So stay tuned in 2022 and be sure to follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn so you see all of the articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.